I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the fourth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the rise of pseudoscience, the ethics of spying, the future of liberalism, the trustworthiness of science, the meaning of the soul, the origins of religion, and the reason why we're in this whole global mess in the first place. The websites of the British, American and French intelligence services put ethical norms at the forefront of their agency's activities. On reflection, that might seem a bit strange. After all, isn't the work of the intelligence services by definition a bit immoral, manipulating, eavesdropping, spying, lying? How could that kind of activity ever hope to satisfy serious ethical norms? The tension invites two parallel reflections. One is about how deep the instinct to deceive lies within us. The other is how deep the instinct to live morally and righteously is. It's a tension that demands very careful ethical deliberation, which is precisely what it gets in a new book by Cécile Fabre. Cécile is Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Oxford and Senior Research Fellow at All Souls College. She has particular interests in the theories of philosophy of democracy, just war theory, the ethics of foreign policy, and most recently, the ethics of espionage. And her latest book is entitled Spying Through a Glass Darkly, The Ethics of Espionage and Counterintelligence. Cecile, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you begin your book by retelling the story from the Old Testament book of Numbers when Moses sent out spies to assess the land of Canaan and its inhabitants. And you go on to say that the Israelites' consequent failure to invade the land resulted in, quote, possibly one of the earliest and most spectacular intelligence failures on record. Um, It's obviously a slightly tongue-in-cheek statement, but it does rather underline, doesn't it, how espionage is about as old as humanity, isn't it? Well, yes, absolutely. I would agree with that. In the historical record, how far can we trace it back? Well, we have possibly earliest record in uh, Sun Tzu, The Art of War, which endorses, you know, spying. It's a resounding articulation of how important it is for rulers to use spies. So I can't give you the earliest recorded. You mentioned also early on that it's renowned as one of the world's three oldest professions, the others being prostitution and mercenarism, which gives an indication of the the moral field we're working in. Yes, it does. It does give an indication of the moral field in which we are working. I mean, of course, there are interesting comparisons that people often make between those three professions. It's underhand, it's not noble to prostitute oneself, to fight for money, to spy on others. It's it's not coincidental Mm. that those three should quite often be mentioned in Mm. a single breath. Very early on, you say there's been very little serious philosophical work on espionage. And then you also go on to say that the bread and butter of espionage and counterintelligence is, and I quote again, deception, treason, manipulation, exploitation, blackmail, eavesdropping, computer hacking, and mass surveillance. 
do you think there's a connection between those two statements? Is this just too shady or too grubby an area for moral philosophers to tread? Well, you put your finger on something which has long puzzled me, and the reason why I wanted to write a book about this, that, to repeat, there is very little serious philosophical work on espionage. I don't think that the reason is that espionage involves deception, treason, manipulation, and so on, simply because on most of those topics, there is actually a fairly well-developed corpus. It's not as if philosophers have not worked on deception, manipulation, exploitation, blackmail, or indeed surveillance and eavesdropping. So I'm not entirely sure why it is that espionage has not been dealt with by philosophers. And in fact, I'm all the more puzzled by it as espionage is a handmaiden of war and there is a very, very well-developed philosophy of war, at least in the Western canon. The only uh, explanation that I can come up with is that espionage is so important, central to particular kinds of popular culture, you know, whether in you know, novels, films, TV series, that maybe doesn't seem serious enough. And it doesn't usually involve acts of killing. So on the one hand, it doesn't seem very serious. On the other hand, it doesn't seem that urgent, you know, morally speaking. I think that makes a lot of sense in that inevitably the first person one thinks about when one mentions spying is James um, Bond. It's, it's James Bond. It's not a character that lends himself to serious ethical reflection. And when I was researching and writing the book, I caught myself thinking, really? Is that really what you are doing? Like writing a book on the ethics of James Bond? Really? That's not... <laughs> serious. Um, but I think actually, in fact, it is very serious, yes. you know, precisely because it involves deception, exploitation, blackmail, surveillance, with the end of harming yes. some other person. Now, there will be some people who think that because we're dealing in this particular murky world, that anything goes. If you're dealing, for example, as somebody as self-evidently unscrupulous as, as Vladimir Putin, for example, why saddle yourself with moral scruples at all? That, in effect, is almost tantamount to saying that all is fair, not just in love, but in war as well. And not all is fair in war. I mean, as I said, a couple of months ago, there is a very well-developed philosophical tradition, the purpose of which is to articulate and defend moral constraints on the resort to war, and indeed on soldiers' conduct in war, as well as, in fact, states, regimes, political actors' conduct after war. Now, if it is true that not anything goes in war, as indeed international law stipulates, then it must be true that not anything goes when it comes to the acquisition of information which the other side would much rather that we do not get. And the same applies to the protection of our information which we don't want the other side to get. So it seems to me that even with someone like Vladimir Putin, we ought to abide by a range of moral norms and I would say the same about mm. spying and counterintelligence. So given the very close parallels there is, at least in our approach to spying with war, why isn't, for example, just war theory sufficient? Why isn't just war theory adequate to the ethics of espionage? So I think, I think it's a very good question. I've often thought about it. And indeed, in some of the philosophical literature that there is on espionage, what you see is a fairly straightforward application of you know, just war theory to the problem of espionage. I think it's a mistake for a number of reasons. While it is true that we can learn something from just war theory when we think about espionage, 
it seems to me that the task of just war theory is to justify acts of killing first and foremost. And that, that, in fact, is why, one of the reasons why, just war theory is so important to the Christian tradition. The challenge is how to justify killing when you are a Christian. Now, this is an obvious point to make, but it does bear stressing, to spar is not the same as to kill. And it seems to me that there are ethical issues when we have to think about, for example, deceiving someone, manipulating someone, placing someone under observation, which are not the same as the ethical issues raised by the acts of killing. And so that's why it seems to me that, you know, simply saying, if you have a just cause for going to war, you have a just cause for spying, if you can kill combatants, you can spy on combatants, it's not enough. It pays to be more attentive to the various ways in which you know, killing differs from mm. those other acts. Mm. We should, I think, disambiguate the terms espionage and counterintelligence, which you do very well in the book. You have chapters on everything from keeping secrets, recruiting agents, economic espionage, mass surveillance, all the way through to full-on treason. Are there qualitative differences between these, or are they activities that are all on the same scale, effectively? So can you clarify what you mean by that? Would you see a discussion about the ethics of mass surveillance, for example, having a lot in common with a discussion on the ethics of treason? Or would, say, treason be so unconscionably bad that actually we're effectively having different conversations there? I don't think that treason is so unconsciously bad that it can never be justified. On the contrary, I think it can sometimes you know, be justified. But before I go on to that, let me try and answer your more general question. So the way I see it is like this. When we try to justify espionage or indeed counterintelligence, the latter, as I define it, consisting in protecting our secrets, the former consisting in acquiring secrets, we have to always bear in mind that we are trying to justify acts which might potentially be harmful or subject others to a risk of harm. And the same applies with war. It's true. I said earlier, espionage is not the same as war. But in both cases, you know, we need to work out whether it is morally permissible to kill, morally permissible to deceive. And so the task consists in working out whether and if so why we have a presumptive claim not to be harmed and whether and if so why we sometimes lose or forfeit that presumptive claim not to be harmed. So there is a sense in which there is no qualitative difference, as you put it, between those various tactics. There are differences between them in that you know, we are trying to justify very different things. Mm. To say, for example, that we are going to protect some very, very important information about ourselves by setting up in a cyber domain a certain number of firewalls at the possible cost of failing to make available information about ourselves which would enable us to save lives is not the same, it seems to me, at all as inserting one of our agents into enemy territory mm. with a view to obtaining information. Mm. 
about the enemy. So in both cases, we try to think about the ethics of harming or allowing harm to happen, but the way in which we think about it will differ depending on the context yep. and the means we use. Does that make sense? That does. It's a helpful clarification. I want to pick up on one specific point about economic espionage. People often put economic espionage into a, a different moral category because they see it as an economic issue, as a matter for personal advancement. Whereas, say, espionage for the sake of security or rights is a different category altogether. You don't talk about corporate and industrial no. espionage, do you? You're talking about no. economic espionage for the sake of a wider public good. Is that right? That's right. There are many different possible definitions of the terms, but roughly I define corporate and industrial espionage as being carried out by firms, by economic actors, usually against other economic actors with a view to maximizing profits. Because the book is about espionage in the service of foreign policy, broadly construed, I concentrate on state-sponsored economic espionage. So this is states using their intelligence services to acquire information about private economic actors on the grounds that that information is necessary for the conduct of foreign policy, again, which I understand in a fairly large way so as to include matters of national and critical security. So an example of that might be to monitor compliance with economic sanctions yes. that were morally justified, for example. Yes, absolutely. So we all know, having all read the news in the last few days, that a number of countries have imposed a raft of additional economic and financial sanctions against a number of key members of the current Russian administration. There is an expectation that the relevant private economic and financial actors, banks, for example, will comply with those sanctions. And I think it is an interesting question to ask ourselves whether the United States, France, the United Kingdom, are morally justified in asking their intelligence services to find out whether those private economic actors are compliant. Mm. So let's probe a bit more into this moral justification. You state your main thesis in the book in this way, intelligence activities are morally justified and sometimes mandatory only as a means to protect oneself and third parties from violations of fundamental moral rights or risks thereof in the context of foreign policy writ large. Let's unpick that slightly because there's a lot there. What do you mean by fundamental moral rights? That's a good question. Essentially, I mean human rights as we find them in the panoply of international documents, so the Universal Declaration, first and foremost, as well as the various covenants which were adopted, particularly in the mid-60s. I mean, the reason I use fundamental rather than human is this. I do not want to commit myself to the view that in theory and principle, only human beings have those rights. I want to remain open to the possibility that there might already be somewhere or at some time will be a species which is sufficiently similar to us in the relevant ways that we wouldn't have no choice but to extend to them 
those rights. So that's why I use this particular adjective. But it is human rights that I have in mind. How big a difference does it make if you are spying for a liberal democracy, say, compared to a dictatorship? I do think that there are obviously some important differences between spying for a liberal democracy compared to a dictatorship. I mean, if there is a presumption against spying, that is to say against acquiring information that we think the other side doesn't want us to have, then that presumption ought to be harder to lift when we seek to spy on in a liberal democracies. Likewise, if there is a presumption in favor of keeping and protecting information about us that we don't want the other side to have, then it seems to me that the presumption should be harder to lift when we are a dictatorship. You know, dictatorships have less of a claim to the protection of their own secrets than liberal democracies. Because they are more likely to undermine the fundamental moral rights that you're talking absolutely. about, isn't it? That's absolutely right. So that difference, you know, it seems to me, is very important. Mm. However, liberal democracies, as we know all too well, are perfectly capable and willing to conduct unjust foreign policies, be it against other liberal democracies or indeed against you know, dictatorships. Conversely, we should not, it seems to me, be oblivious to the fact that dictatorial regimes can sometimes have just foreign policy ends. I mean, that's a controversial thing to say, particularly at the moment, but I do believe that it's true. One of the sentences from your book leapt out, even dictatorial regimes are sometimes justified in protecting their populations from wrongful threats. As you say, that's a challenging statement, isn't it? Could you give an example of what you mean by that? So the example that immediately comes to my mind I suppose for the sake of argument, the, the siege of Leningrad by the Nazis in the Second World War was a war crime. That's a fairly standard you know, thing to say. Let us also suppose, equally standardly, that the Stalinist regime was one of the most grossly unjust regimes ever to have been in power. Nevertheless, it seems to me that espionage operations with the end to shorten the siege of Leningrad, as conducted by Soviet intelligence services against their Nazi counterparts, were morally justified, or would have been morally justified if they had taken place. Likewise, this is more controversial. A lot of people believe that the 2003 invasion of Iraq by the US and UK-led coalition was an unjust war. Well, suppose that it is true. Suppose that you take that view by implication, you are committing yourself to the thought that there is a sense in which the regime of Saddam Hussein, which was also an evil dictatorial regime, was justified in protecting its population from a ex-hypothesite wrongful invasion. And if that is correct, then it seems to me that by implication, that regime was justified in conducting espionage operations against the US and UK-led coalition, but solely with a view to protect the Iraqis from being killed by the coalition. That's a very interesting example. And that, to be clear, is on the basis of the assumption that the invasion of Iraq in 2003 yes. was unjust. Absolutely. So it's a very kind of targeted and specific yes. justification Absolutely. for... Yeah. Absolutely. So I don't want anyone who might be listening at some point <laughs> to interpret what I've said 
as a blanket permission on the part of any regime to spy on whomever they wish. Mm. Well, there have been some very helpful and concrete examples. And I want us to focus on just a few more to illustrate what you're talking about. And we've already touched on the subject of treason. It's an interesting word. It's the worst thing you could do. And yet, your argument is not necessarily. And you give the example, one example of Oleg Gordievsky. Tell us about Oleg Gordievsky and what he shows us about the ethics of treason. So, Oleg Gordievsky, he's still alive. He lives somewhere, as far as I know, in England, under the ongoing protection of this country's secret services at an undisclosed location. He was a very high-ranking member of the KGB, so high-ranking, in fact, that he rose to being deputy head of station at the London embassy. And for about 10 or 12 years, he passed on information about his country, about the Soviet Union, about the leadership, about the Soviet military, about the KGB indeed, to the British and via the British to the Americans. He's widely credited at having provided crucial information to the then Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, and the then American President, Ronald Reagan, about, in particular, the mindset of Soviet leaders at the time. He's widely credited for having enabled Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan to understand that the Soviet leaders at the time were deeply, deeply, deeply worried about the Western alliance in general, and NATO in particular, conducting a nuclear strike against the Soviet Union. And part of the worry, according to Gordievsky, in the minds of the Soviet leaders was the escalating anti-communist rhetoric emanating in particular from the White House, which it appears the White House meant largely as a means to appease a domestic audience, but which the Soviet leaders were regarding as actually articulating a real threat against the Soviet Union. And there were a couple of points, particularly in 83, when NATO was conducting a large-scale exercise, where Gordievsky said, you've got to be really careful because they're going to see that this is for real. Now, the KGB knew by that point that one of their own was leaking information, to the West, they basically understood that Gordievsky was responsible for the leak at the point at which he was about to be arrested in Moscow whilst on the trip he was spirited out, exfiltrated out by the British into safety in England. Now, Gordievsky, in the eyes of his erstwhile colleagues, and in fact still in the eyes of many people in Russian inner circles, is regarded as a traitor. And in fact, the British, or indeed the French, you know, would regard as a traitor anyone amongst their own who would do something similar. So at least two things to say about this. First is that your traitor is my loyal ally mm. and vice versa. So we don't apply the same standards depending on whether we are the betrayed or the beneficiary of the act of betrayal. And that troubles me. Mm. It seems to me that we should have a, a more impartial assessment which look at the morality of the ends in a pursuit by the person who betrays. And second, I want to argue that in some cases, treason is morally justified. Mm. So I'm perfectly happy to say that 
Brodievsky was a traitor. In fact, he himself is on the record as saying, well, sure, yes, I was a traitor. You know, however, and I quote here, the most criminal element of the criminal state was the KGB. It was a gang of bandits. To betray bandits was very good for the soul. Mm. So let's concede that Gordievsky was a traitor to the KGB, to the Soviet state. There is an interesting question as to whether he was a traitor to the Soviet people. He might argue not that he was defending the Soviet people. Mm. But let us assume that Gordievsky was a traitor to the Soviet people. I want to say that in this particular case, his act of treason was morally justified. So the moral status of that treachery depends very significantly on what it is directed to, who he is yes. who is betraying, effectively. And, and to whom, and what the side to whom he was betraying. Yes. One small question. Does it make a difference to the moral status of the act the risks that are involved. Because it's important to emphasise that Gordievsky was taking absolutely huge risks and other spies who were discovered were dispensed of in the most brutal ways. Does that affect the moral quality of the act? It does, but it intersects with other considerations which will also affect the moral status of the act. So, as a first cut, we might want to say that the greater the risks the more praiseworthy you are. At the same time, and relatedly, the weaker your duty to do so. I want to stress that point because, and this is another consideration that affects the moral status of the act, it seems to me that there is a difference between someone like Gordievsky, on the one hand, who, as a member of the KGB, is part of an organisation of bandits. There is a difference between the position of someone like him, who by dint of his role is, in one way or another, complicitous in the wrongdoings committed by that organisation, and someone who just happens to stumble upon crucially important information, but who is not part of the machinery that commits serious acts of wrongdoings. Someone who is complicitous is under a more stringent obligation to thwart you know, the wrongdoings which his organisation commits than someone who is not mm. complicitous in those wrongdoings. Mm. Let me ask you about motives. Take a couple of examples. Kim Philby, famous British spy for the Soviets. He betrayed his country because he was committed to communism. Aldrich Ames, Robert Hansen, they are Americans who betrayed their country to the Soviets, but they did so for money. Now, instinctively, we kind of assume that there is a difference there. People do things ideologically are somehow purer than people who are bought. Is that the case here? I don't take that view. So I don't think that the fact that you betray for ideological reasons lets you off the moral hook. The fact that someone says, oh, well, I'm doing it because I believe in uh, in communism and I want to help the one regime in the world um, that is trying to bring about communism doesn't do it, as far as I'm concerned, when we consider the nature of that regime. It seems to me that there is a difference between, a moral difference between someone who helps the Soviet regime in 1932, 1933-34, not just out of commitment to communism, but out of commitment to anti-Nazism. There's a difference between that person on the one hand and the person who helps the Stalinist regime in the 1940s, early 1950s. I mean, by then, Philby had stopped most of his activities. Mm. But you see the point I'm trying to make, uh, which is we have to be sensitive to the context in which they operated. Conversely, 
And perhaps more controversially, the fact that someone betrayed for money does not, it seems to me, suffice for us to cast unremitting opprobrium and aspersion on this person. There are examples of spies, particularly Soviet traitors, who were taken for a ride, really, by Western intelligence agencies, particularly the CIA, in that the material value of what they were passing on at absolutely enormous risks to themselves uh, far, far, far exceeded the material rewards they were given. Let me ask one small practical question before I ask one big moral one, which is that one of the objections that's often placed at the door of spying and espionage is that it's ineffective. You uh, mentioned earlier in our conversation the intelligence activities vis-a-vis the Iraq war and, of course, the existence or non-existence of weapons of mass destruction that were allegedly identified through intelligence activities is a very, very famous example there. How do you factor that into the ethical evaluation of this whole business? Should we always be sceptical about the value of intelligence? Well, I think we should be healthily sceptical. So ineffectiveness is a very serious problem. Remember, I said earlier that there is an important sense in which when we try to justify espionage and counterintelligence, we are trying to justify the resort to tactics which might be very harmful. It seems to me that we ought not to harm another person unless one does stand some chance of achieving our ends. Now, I don't take the view that espionage is always ineffective. If I took that view, I would argue for dismantling Mm. intelligence agencies, which I don't, quite clearly. So the thought here is this, that urging intelligence agencies, but also us citizens on whose behalf and for whose benefit intelligence agencies act, to always bear in mind that A, espionage is not enough, B, it might not be in a reliable C, therefore, the information that we are you know, given ought to be treated cautiously and analysed mm. properly. And D, finally, in a democracy such as ours, the responsibility ultimately lies with our elected leaders. Yes. I promised you one big ethical question. One huge moral authority that you need to square off against if you're ever going to justify espionage is Immanuel Kant, who described espionage as an infernal art. As you say in the book, his idea of the categorical imperative rules the deception that is inherent in spying as always impermissible. Why is Kant wrong? I think he's wrong because, first, there are cases where it really seems extraordinarily counterintuitive to rule out deception as impermissible. So the famous example that's always given in the literature, you know, is the, well, it's Kant's own example, the murderer at the door who turns up on your doorstep, asks you whether you know where his intended victim has disappeared. And Kant says that if you lie to the murderer, and give him false information, you act wrongly. Now, importantly, he doesn't think that you wrong the murderer by lying to him. Um, He agrees that the murderer has forfeited a claim to be told the truth, but he thinks that we are under a general, impersonal, undirected duty of humanity not to lie in general. And I'm a sceptic of those duties. Mm. So it seems to me that we may lie, indeed that we must lie under those 
circumstances for the sake of, you know, the victim, first and foremost. Yes. I've got one final question for you. I was reminded on occasion when reading your book of the famous statement by the American theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, who once remarked, excuse the gender-specific language of the original quote, man's, man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible, but man's inclination to injustice makes democracy necessary. And it occurred to me reading your book, one might say something vaguely similar about the ethics of espionage to the effect that, say, our inclination to injustice makes espionage inevitable, but our capacity for justice makes the ethical discussion of espionage necessary. So I want you just to briefly reflect for us on what espionage, and in particular, our inclination to reflect ethically about espionage, what that says about us as human beings? That's a very interesting question. So what it says about us as human beings is that if and when we do reflect on those practices, which, as you said at the very beginning of our conversation, are at first sight really deeply problematic, it says that when we reflect on those morally problematic practices, we are able to confront some of the difficult facets of human nature. Also, I want to make that point without sounding facetious. I don't feel facetious at all about this. Writing the book, particularly researching the book, was one of the most fun projects I've ever done. And it's true that this stuff is fun. And in thinking about it as a moral and political philosopher, but also as a citizen, I was always aware that I found it fun. And that made me, and still does make me very uncomfortable. So I speak for myself really here. You know, what it has forced me to confront in me, but I think it is the case in many people, is that, you know, thinking about those practices, which are morally problematic, can in some sense be entertaining. And I do find that difficult because we are talking about deceiving people, betraying people, entrapping people, and so on and so forth. Mm. Um, it seems to me that as a matter of intellectual honesty and integrity, you know, we need to confront this dissonance between the utmost, you know, seriousness of the subject matter, on the other hand, the often lighter-hearted way in which it is dealt with and to which we respond in ourselves mm. and in our culture. That's an acute and, and slightly disturbing place on it which is. to end. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> the book is called Spying Through a Glass Darkly, The Ethics of Espionage and Counterintelligence. Cecile, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you very much for having me. Next week, I'll be speaking to Robin Dunbar about his book How Religion Evolved and Why It Endures. I think part of it is the effect that these transcendental beliefs that most religions involve somehow prevail on you to behave better towards other members of your community that you live with. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Turner and Elizabeth Oldfield. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk. 
where you can find all the episodes from this series and previous series and leave feedback. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It'll help other people find the podcast.